What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This is ADH Television. The program has saved the nation, and I'm David Flint. My guest today is a well-known commentator, well-known on this station and elsewhere, Dr. David Adler. He's the president of the Australian Jewish Association. He's a prize-winning graduate in medicine from the University of New South Wales, and was the deputy medical secretary of the Australian Medical Association and as such has been responsible for significant features of health policy at both state and federal levels. David, uh, I think one of the bases, I've come to the strong conclusion that one of the bases of this country, as many pillars, is our Judeo-Christian religion, the principles of our Judeo-Christian religion. And of course, there's no obligation for anybody to belong to any religion or not to be an atheist. These are private matters, but in the building of this country, there's a very strong Judeo-Christian ethos. Do you agree with that? 100%, David, uh, and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, Indeed, not just for Australia, but Western civilization uh, is based on Judeo-Christian principles. And as you said, whether someone is religiously observant or not is a different issue. That's very much a personal journey. Uh, But the actual uh, foundations, the first documented uh, legal code, moral code, if you like, uh, of the Ten Commandments um, has been widely adopted into uh, the Westminster system. and on and on. As far as Australia specifically is concerned, um, there was a Jewish contingent on the First Fleet. Uh, And I hasten to say, not as crew. Uh, (laughs) So uh, Australia's connection with the Jewish community uh, goes back to the First Fleet. And as with uh, other locations, it it is part of uh, our culture to make a contribution uh, wherever you are. And Jewish people have done that in Australia, in government, in business, uh, in the arts, in academia, in medicine, science, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, we work closely with um, those who hold uh, uh, similar values. And as you say, the Judeo-Christian ethic um, is, is something upon which this country is indeed built. A few years ago, I was being interviewed by a journalist on The Australian, many years ago, and it was a broad-ranging interview, and suddenly he asked me whether I believed in the devil. And I said, well, I certainly do believe that there is a significant element of evil in the world. Mm-hmm. And I said, you, you need merely look at the Nazi regime and what they did, or the Stalinist regime and what they did to know that there is enormous evil in the world. I must say that in recent years, I was just absolutely outraged, appalled 
by what happened on the 7th of October. There, there was the ultimate in evil, just reading descriptions of what was done, what was done to parents in the presence of their children and then done to the children too, just indicated to me that this was the ultimate in evil. This was an absolutely appalling thing. It wasn't war, it was something far worse than war. What is your feeling about October the 7th? Uh, Look, October the 7th has changed uh, the Jewish world. It's changed uh, Israel. Um, The barbarity of it was just so shocking. Um, There are so many stories uh, and indeed hundreds of hours of videos um, the Israeli government has assembled a 43-minute package which has been shown to um, journalists, has been shown to parliamentarians, including uh, in Australia. Um, in that 43 minutes, about 135 people are murdered uh, and sometimes in the most barbaric way. The cruelty that accompanied it uh, was just um, beyond uh, normal human thinking. Uh, Having kids tortured in front of their parents and vice versa with, you know, the gouging of eyes, the removal of of body parts. Um, One of the worst examples was when the Hamas terrorists entered a home of a young family Uh, They shot the father, killed him, and there was a baby. They put the baby in an oven while they raped the young mother. So she was being raped while her baby was being cooked. I mean, that is just beyond, beyond, and I don't know how you can put any other label than ultimate evil. There were uh, cases of children being murdered while the terrorists were filming it on the kid's phone and because on the kid's phone there might be an entry called mum or dad, they would then send the video of the murder um, to the parent. Um, And, look, I, I can tell you that if anybody responsible wants to have a look at some of the evidence, it's not on uh, general social media, it wouldn't be allowed, but you can go onto Telegram and if you search one of these two terms, either Southern First Responders or Hamas Atrocities, you will see uh, a whole selection of examples of CCTV and body cam footage um, that contains the evidence. I'm not recommending that for anyone, but if anybody um, does feel of a mind to want to see some of the first-hand evidence that uh, is available through that avenue. This was made available to federal politicians? Yes, uh, including in Australia, the, uh, what is it, the Joint Parliamentary um, Security and Intelligence Committee uh, was invited to see it uh, at the Israel Embassy in Canberra. Um, and a couple of them did media interviews including Andrew Hastie, uh, as an example afterwards, um, and commented on on what they saw. Were government and Greens representatives <coughs> invited? Uh, I, I don't know, David. I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Um, the a... Greens, of course, have, distinct, have distinguished themselves on the low side uh, of being a group which collectively have not uh, unequivocally condemned what Hamas did. Um, They uh, have been called out, uh, including by some prominent people such as uh, our former Minister for Foreign Affairs, Alexander Downer, who put on his social media um, a, a very direct and harsh term which said to the effect, I used to think that the Greens were uh, just nutty environmentalists, tree huggers. Now I see them as far worse. They are an anti-Semitic cult. And 
um, you know, we agree with him. They're, they're, uh, they are the only political party uh, in Australia which meets the technical definition of anti-Semitism and they've done it a, a numerous times. They are no longer, an, if they ever were, an environmental party. They are a party of the extreme left and uh, they are adopting all of the features of the extreme left, which seems to be to be strongly anti-Semitic. There was a piece this morning, at the time that this is being made, this program, it was in The Australian by Jason Thomas, and I thought he made a very strong point when he said, Osama bin Laden would have been proud. Islamist terrorism now is mainstreamed into Western society, including right here in Australia. Islamist terrorism now is mainstreamed into Western society, including right here in Australia. Do you think that's an exaggeration, David? One of the things that's been uh, shocking, David, is that Osama bin Laden's uh, letter to America, as it's called, uh, it's a four-page document, um, and as you would expect, it is a diatribe of anti-Western uh, slanders as well as being uh, grossly anti-Semitic. And that letter has been picked up by what you might call the TikTok generation uh, and has been seen millions of times recently. Uh, because of that, we recently... Uh, released a copy of the letter um, because I think it's important that good people know what we're dealing with. Uh, in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, as everyone knows, we saw uh, very quickly after October 7 uh, what they call pro-Palestine uh, protests but uh, are really pro-Hamas protests. Uh, in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, the now infamous chants of the Opera House steps of F the Jews and gas the Jews was seen worldwide. Um, and our authorities, the police, um, stood by and watched that happen while Israeli flags were burnt, while flares were lent, let off, while in some Excitement to violence occurred. So I think by definition of it happening um, in social media, on the streets of our major cities, um, the various chants of um, globalise the Intifada. Um, Intifada is a, is a terrorist program involving suicide bombers uh, and other murderous mechanisms. Uh, the classic chant of from the river to the sea um, is a chant of genocide. Um, all those things happening. So, um, yeah, that that is very scary for us. It should be very scary for Australia. And if I can make the loop back to your opening statement, uh, history teaches us that a society that allows a rise in anti-Semitism is a society in decline. And you can go back through numerous examples, whether it's the Roman Empire that turned on the Jews, the ancient Greeks, uh, Spain, the Spanish Empire, which expelled the Jews, doesn't exist anymore. Modern incarnations, the former Soviet Union with its programs uh, against uh, Jewish people, of course, Nazi Germany was eliminated and on and on. So um, this could be, I hope it's not, but it could be a bit of a tipping point for some countries in the West and uh, it's one of the things that should be of concern to every good person in Australia um, that it is a symptom of a very sick society, what we're seeing at the moment. Uh, the mainstreaming of uh, Islamic terrorism, the rise of uh, anti-Semitism, these are the serious matters to worry about. This has been going on for quite a while and I can go back, in fact, I do go back in. I remember once I was driving home, it was in the early 2000s, I was driving home 
on an evening. It was a Friday evening and I was going up Queen Street, Wallara. I passed the Temple Emmanuel, the Jewish synagogue. Mm -hmm. And what surprised me was that there were security guards around mm -hmm. the area. And a few, few months later, I had to go into the city on a Saturday morning and I walked past the great synagogue in Elizabeth Street and there were burly guards. There were Maoris, obviously. They were very big guards outside of the synagogue and they were standing by the, the gates outside and they were just opening them a little and they were being very careful who went into the synagogue. And those two things indicated to me that something was very wrong and I mentioned this to a few Jewish friends, and they were telling me that even kindergartens, Jewish kindergartens, mm. were looking to having security. This was in the early 2000s. And then there was a, a demonstration in Sydney. It was about Palestine, I think. And at the end of the demonstration, there were some people, and they threw stones. As they went down George Street, they threw stones at St Andrew's Cathedral. And when they were asked about this by the media, they asked, why were you doing that? What what was the reason they said? Their explanation was, oh, we thought it was a synagogue. So there was oh, this element of anti-Semitism brewing away there early, well before what's been happening now. And what are the reasons for that, do you think? What, what, what has been happening in Australia? Uh, anti-Semitism is, is a big subject, um, but... Uh, we see it coming from a number of, of sources. Um, probably the largest now is the Islamic-driven uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, it, is, it is a big issue. Uh, it is in some of the Islamic scriptures uh, and uh, certainly the politics associated with the Middle East uh, drives... Islamic anti-Semitism. Um, it, it's also um, around the world been uh, quite violent and uh, whether it's the suicide bombers or the car ramming um, through to, um, you know, some shootings, etc. cetera, uh, it's a big deal. Uh, the second area which has driven anti-Semitism, um, not always expressly violent, but certainly intimidating is the political left. Um, we've spoken a bit about the Greens. Uh, it also exists in the left wing of the Labor Party and in some of the associated organisations, uh, unions, uh, the um, Socialist Alliance type groups. The third area, um, which gets a lot of publicity, but in Australia is relatively small, the so-called neo-Nazis, uh, the far-right nutters. Uh, when they hold meetings, they're lucky to get uh, 20 people along, um, but they do graffiti, they're active on social media, and I know that ASIO thinks that that trend uh, is, is increasing. Um, occasionally, a, a solitary person will do something violent, and there's a fourth group which I'm prepared to call out, um, few are, uh, and that is the, the left-wing Jewish anti-Semitism. Uh, it, it does exist. It's very destructive. So what's going on here, I think, is something quite deep. And that is that if you are into any of the isms, David, whether it's communism or socialism or Islamism, uh, then you are against Western civilization, And consciously or unconsciously, as we discussed early, the foundations of Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian values, um, began in the Holy Land, in the land of Israel, uh, both the Judeo and the Christian side. And the Judeo side was the foundation for some of the Christian values. So... Consciously or unconsciously, if you are pursuing those anti-Western ideologies, you are reflexly anti-Israel and you may cross the line into being anti-Semitic. And that's why we see it in um, the Islamist side. It's why we see it 
in the uh, the hard political left. It's it's a fairly deep explanation, but um, I, I'm really convinced that it has some some validity. That this is a uh, uh, a contest for the type of civilization we're going to live in. A few years ago, under the Gillard government, uh, a matter came up. I think it was in relation to. Uh, the PLO and the United Nations and what our position should be when a resolution came up and the tradition was that we would oppose it. And mm -hmm. Bob Carr, who was then the foreign minister, worked against that. Although he was a minister, he worked against his prime minister within the caucus, which seems to go, in my view, against the, the rules or rather the conventions concerning ministers and uh, the backbench. But he, he went against it and he was reported as saying that the reason why he wanted a change in the policy was how else will I be able to explain this on the steps of the Lakemba Mosque? How else can I explain this? How, how, how would I be able to explain this on the steps of the Lakemba Mosque? What on earth was Bob Carr up to there, do you think? Well, there's a, there's a couple of factors uh, with Bob Carr. Firstly, I mean, I, like you, I've been a critic of some of the things that uh, Julia Gillard did. But on this issue, um, she was pretty solid. Um, she supported uh, Israel. She supported the Jewish community. And uh, she, her prime ministership was threatened by the actions of Bob Carr at the time. Um, it was quite tense uh, in the Labor Party and some of that tension um, still exists to today. Um, I know somebody who did a study based on our previous census. How many federal seats are influenced by the Muslim vote? And at that time that the study was done, um, 15 seats were identified that could swing on uh, the Muslim vote in those particular electorates. The number of seats that would likely swing on the Jewish vote was possibly one, which is now the, uh, the seat of McNamara in Melbourne. So if you're uh, into um, political power, then it's a no-brainer. Um, there are over 800,000 um, Muslims in Australia, possibly now getting closer to a million. Uh, the number of Jewish people in Australia, uh, a little over 100,000. So it's eight to one if, if you want a, uh, uh, a number. So on the pure politics, uh, that is a factor. Um, th there are other issues. Bob Carr has behaved in a rather odd manner on a range of foreign policy issues. We know that he's been a big defender of uh, China, of the Chinese Communist Party. And there was an article published in the Financial Review some years ago that uh, exposed his relationship with a number of uh, Chinese-funded organisations. Uh, not suggesting that's illegal, but um, the article suggested there was some influence going on there. Uh, we've looked into Bob Carr to see if there's any relationship with uh, Islamic or Muslim organisations, and we believe that there is. Uh, there is a superannuation fund in Australia called Crescent Wealth. It is the only... Uh, superannuation fund which describes itself as halal compliant. It has a charity associated with it called Crescent Foundation. And I would invite people to simply Google the term Crescent Foundation, bring up the website, have a look at who the chairman of uh, Crescent Foundation is, and you will see that it is no other than Bob Carr. Now, again, I'm not suggesting anything illegal here, but there is a relationship with the Islamic money, um, the superannuation fund, 
uh, and their charity, uh, Crescent Foundation. Is that influential in what he's doing? Well, uh, perhaps, but at least it's a conflict of interest that needs to be declared and it is not adequately declared when he makes comments and lobbies uh, on this subject. While we're looking at the role of politicians, to what extent can we criticise the late Malcolm Fraser in relation to what is called the Lebanese exception? In my view, mm. he completely mismanaged that. It was his due, he gave the exception, it was for a specific purpose, that is the Christians in the Lebanon uh, who might need to come to Australia but who didn't qualify as refugees and it seemed to be it seemed to be not the Christians who came under that cover and there did not seem to be a proper control of that Lebanese exception. Uh, look, this goes to the heart of Australia's immigration policy and uh, whether we bring into people who are um, prepared to integrate, if not assimilate, uh, into Australian society. And that means having values that don't have to be identical, but are at least compatible. Uh, I'm old enough, David, as, as you are, to have lived through a number of waves of immigration to Australia. I was born in Melbourne and grew up when there was uh, a Greek and Italian uh, migration. And look, initially there were some, pro some problems, but very quickly the Greeks and Italians uh, seemed to integrate very well and make a big contribution to life in Melbourne. My family moved into state when I finished school and I was arrived in time for some Asian immigration, uh, Vietnam and China. And again, there was um, initial problems, but I think by and large, people will agree that the Vietnamese and the Chinese communities uh, in Sydney have, uh, have integrated and seem to be hardworking, productive people making a contribution to Australia. Um, the, it is more difficult to put that description on uh, some of those that arrived uh, from Lebanon. Uh, there are, um, we, we do recall what was uh, called the uh, Middle East uh, Organised Crime Unit, uh, MIOC. Uh, so the police found it significant enough that they would have their own specialised unit to deal with it. Uh, I, I think significant errors were made in selection. So what's the lesson we learn now? And the lesson we learn now is being breached again right in front of us. Uh, in the last few weeks, it was recently made known that Australia has issued 860-plus visas to people from Gaza. Uh, now, David, let me say that if you wanted to search the whole planet for a place that was more anti-Western, that has had in its education system for two generations uh, brainwashing against Western values, a place that has been controlled by a prescribed terrorist organisation, a place where teaching has as its foundations anti-Semitism and the glorification of terrorism, you could find no more qualified place than Gaza. Um, we know of other areas where um, such refugees have been taken in uh, years ago. One uh, country which recently released data was Denmark. It took a cohort of uh, somewhere between three and four hundred uh, in in the nineteen nineties, and as of now, sixty four percent have criminal records. That's two thirds have criminal records. So we've raised the alarm bells that the lessons from the Malcolm Fraser era uh, have not been learned. In fact, they seem to be repeated right now in our immigration policy 
And right now, with the issuing of those 860 visas, um, this is not just high risk, this is extreme risk. So uh, it, it's a big deal. And it used to be said that the highest duty of a government was the protection of its citizens. Well, I think the example you gave of Malcolm Fraser and the example I'm giving now under Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong, um, we would say are breaches of that high duty. I think you're right there. And it's uh, not so much repeating the errors of Malcolm Fraser, it's exacerbating them because they, we all know the, the results of that uh, excess of uh, or ba abandonment of duty by Malcolm Fraser. He certainly mishandled that. And uh, we've seen the consequences of that and they seem to have rushed through this. It was just suddenly announced that they had done this without any notice to the Australian people given what has been happening, given the situation uh, after October the 7th, you would have thought they would have been far more careful than that. The other... The okay, other let, let, let me just give sure. one more illustration of how, how difficult a problem it is. Um, in, in southern Israel, uh, that had been issued to people working in Gaza, sorry, living in Gaza, uh, work permits to come into Israel for various jobs. Some thousands of work permits had been issued. And the Israeli security, uh, Shin Bet and other agencies, um, do a lot of screening uh, before issuing the work permits. We learn in relation to October 7 that hundreds of those people who had work permits to come into southern Israel were assisting Hamas. One of the reasons the terrorism was so successful is that Hamas had detailed information of the layouts of all the properties. They had photographs. They knew where the safe rooms were. They knew which places had weapons and which didn't. And this was provided by uh, people who had been screened by the Israeli security. Come October 7, some of them joined in the rampage, in the terrorism, the rapes, um, the abductions. So think about this for a moment. If the high-level uh, security screening that the Israel authorities do proved defective, could our Canberra bureaucrats be so much more effective in, in screening these people than the Israelis? And it, it beggars belief to suggest that that is possible. It is inconceivable that Australia has done adequate security screening. It may be impossible to do adequate security screening. Then if it's um, impossible, for people who if, come if from it's then Gaza. impossible, you shouldn't do it, should you? That, that should Correct. be the attitude of and the government. It is the attitude of the Arab Muslim countries in the Middle East. Yes, that's Egypt, the, that's the Lebanon, true, Syria... Jordan, all the, all the surrounding countries uh, have declined to take refugees from Gaza because they assess it as too high risk. Let's, uh, at, at this point, let's just get some idea of the, the size of this issue. Uh, we're talking about a very small territory, aren't we? These, uh, I think that when the British mandate wound up, Jordan got the greater part of the mandate and what was left is only, what, about a quarter of the mandate and into this is to be fitted a second state, uh, a second a Palestinian state, uh, which would be about the size of the city of Brisbane, which is the whole of Brisbane. It's not a large size. We're talking about uh, a territory, the whole territory of Israel plus Gaza and the West Bank. I think about the, th is it about the third of the size of Tasmania? It's quite small, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 it is geographically small, and, and you're right. Uh, Jordan ended up uh, initially Transjordan, now Jordan, uh, with about 77% of the British mandate of, of Palestine. Uh, and even though the entire mandate was supposed to be uh, for the purpose of creating a national home for the Jewish people, 
in their in their ancient land. Uh, okay, so that was that was created. The remaining twenty three percent was then supposed to be Israel. Of course, the UN did a partition plan that cut it back again, uh, and the area of Gaza has been particularly problematic. Uh, Israel it was part of. Um, governance by Israel until 2005, and uh, Israel withdrew completely. Um, zero Israelis stayed in uh, in Gaza after 2005, and uh, Hamas took over in, uh, well, it was, there was an election and then uh, violence against its opponents, and by 2006, um, it had exerted control of Gaza. Uh, interestingly, and it's often forgotten, that Gaza has two borders with other states. One is Israel and the other is Egypt. And I can tell you there's a period of time when Israel was saying to Egypt, can you take Gaza, please? These are these are your brethren, uh, not ours. Uh, you can do uh, a better job of looking after it. Uh, Egypt, with its knowledge of um, the entrenchment of the Muslim Brotherhood, of the Islamic Jihad, of Hamas basically said, no, we, we don't want anything to do with what's in Gaza. So, uh, frankly, nobody wanted it. Egypt um, did Israel didn't Gaza want it. for a while, didn't it? Egypt did take uh, over Gaza for a while, formally. It was, yeah, well, it, it, it was uh, involved uh, until 1967. Mm. Um, the, yeah, from 48 to 67, uh, it, it did control Gaza. Um, 67 was the Six-Day War and uh, uh, Israel pushed Egypt right back to the, the Nile, including uh, the Sinai. Um, and then until about uh, the early 80s was, was trying to offload Gaza back to Egypt, gave, gave Egypt the Sinai back wanted to give it Gaza back, but uh, Egypt wouldn't take it. Just historically, this uh, Israel was originally a Jewish property. Uh, it was inhabited by the Jewish people. It was the, the Romans then expelled, did they not, uh, the Jews? And uh, later when they returned, it became part of the Ottoman Empire. And then after the First World War, it was admitted by the British as a mandate. Uh, and part of the agreement, which uh, is uh, honoured in, I think, the United Nations Charter section, Article 80 of the United Nations Charter, mm. that this will be the homeland for the Jewish people, having regard to the rights of the, the people who are already there, the Palestinians who are already there. But the, this honours the fact that it was originally the Jewish, and always has been, the Jewish homeland. David, and it's, it's not hard for anybody to see the ancient evidence. Uh, it, it even goes back earlier. Um, anybody who's, who's read the Bible knows about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And you can go to Hebron and you can stand by the tombs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's going back, uh, you know, getting close to 4,000 years. Um, you can go to Jerusalem and have a look out on the eastern side on the Mount of Olives into what is basically um, ancient Jewish burial sites. And there are still uh, many of the old graves uh, there. You can go to the tomb of King David, uh, one of the first king, kings of then the kingdom of Israel. So uh, it, it's, it's not hard to walk around. Um, you can visit those areas. You can see the evidence. Um, the city of David is an extraordinary archaeological site just down the hill from the Temple Mount, if anybody goes to Israel definitely worth visiting and you'll see uh, lots of the evidence of Jewish presence from uh, biblical times there um, that has been unearthed. Um, you can see the ancient coins, you can see um, various structures. 
it's absolutely fascinating. And from the biblical times, the only surviving people uh, are the Jewish people. Uh, The other nations mentioned, like the Hittites and Midianites and Jebusites, etc., are no longer with us. So the only ancient Indigenous people uh, of the land of Israel, of the Holy Land, which remains of the Jewish people. If there were to be a second state in Israel, Mm. I would think that the Israeli government would be very suspicious of the governance of that state, given what has happened in Gaza and on the West Bank. I have been, uh, I spent some time some years ago in Morocco and I came to the conclusion that among the Arab countries, only Morocco and Jordan seem to have governments, governing systems, which in any way approach those of what we would expect of a a civilised situation where you didn't have an oppressive dictatorial government. And both of those were rather authoritarian compared with Australia, both are forms of constitutional monarchies. There are other states which are absolute or near absolute monarchies or towards absolute monarchies. And then, of course, there are republics and the the Arab religion, the Arab uh, system doesn't seem to cope very well with republics because they invariably seem to turn into dictators. Uh, so I, I can well imagine that there would be a strong suspicion in Israel that if there were a second state, that the governance would be strongly an issue. Well, Dave, let, let me make it clear. Um, the majority of Israelis uh, and the current Israeli government uh, does not see it as a prospect or a solution. Uh, neither does our organisation. Um, what is popularly called the two-state solution, we, we say is not a solution at all. It is a delusion. Um, the well, Gaza experiment, you, if you just like... Just to interrupt you, hmm. Israel has made about seven attempts, have they not, to yeah. to bring it on, and every time Correct. that has been rejected. You're right. That the, the, the Arab-Palestinian leadership and, in fact... Um, the Arab-Palestinian people in the majority do not want it. Uh, Because of the um, aggressive brainwashing which has occurred now for two generations, um, they have been told that uh, the Jewish people have no rights, they're uh, colonial settlers, Um, they are usurpers of um, Muslim land that in Islam... Uh, whenever it's conquered, it becomes permanent uh, Muslim land. That was the ISIS philosophy for trying to re-establish uh, a caliphate. But if you just have a look at the, the reality on the ground, um, Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005 unilaterally. It wasn't part of a peace deal. Uh, it was a gesture for peace saying okay, we'll we'll try this, we'll give you this area and see what happens. And what happened was, of course, that a terrorist organisation took over. On the other side, in Judea Samaria, which some people call the West Bank, um, there hasn't been an election for 18 years. Uh, There was supposed to be an election last year, but it was cancelled when polling showed that if the election proceeded, Hamas would win it, uh, that the, there is majority support for the terrorist organisations uh, at the moment. So I, I think your your term suspicion, uh, David, is, if anything, an understatement. Um, I, I think that uh, it's it would take... If, if there was a radical change tomorrow, it would take two generations of uh, proper education, of reasonable education, to wash out the uh, the culture of terrorism and hatred that is, that is built up. It is worse today than it was pre-2005. I, I have cousins in Israel who um, had a manufacturing business in Gaza. 
uh, they used to employ people. Now, it, it wasn't, um, you know, best friends type, but it was civil. And they used to take their cars into Gaza for servicing because the Arab mechanics in Gaza would charge less than the Jewish mechanics uh, in Israel. Uh, now, if they went into Gaza, they'd be lynched. Um, so what was at least a civil working relationship um, is impossible today. Uh, and that's the reality. It's very easy um, sitting comfortably in Sydney, Melbourne or London or Paris or New York or wherever the other centres of Western civilization are making judgments about what should occur in this area. But the whole mindset, the whole ideology, the whole value set uh, is, is quite different. And uh, that's often not understood by our political class. Um, but if you spend time there and talk to people, it, it is a real eye-opener. And there are some, uh, some myths circulating, and one is about immigration and that is the immigration of Jews from Europe under the British mandate uh, and after, after 1948. But the fact is that when you look at this, there was an original Jewish population there. There were true immigrants coming from Europe because it was promised as a homeland, and that was adopted both mm. by Britain and the United States and also adopted by... It's, it's guaranteed under... Article 80 of the uh, United Nations Charter. But in addition, during that period of the British mandate, we're talking about between the First and the Second World Wars, there was certainly immigration coming of Jews from Europe, but there was enormous immigration coming from other Arab countries because the exactly. Jewish population had made Israel a flourishing area, as it is now. It, it, Israel is a remarkable country with really, truly remarkable systems of irrigation and saving water, which we could learn from, but it is really a wonderful country. And at that amount of immigration that, they, that, that happened with the Jewish immigration from Europe meant that it was a thriving, prosperous area. Consequently, there was more Arab immigration into the area, and the British were less interested in controlling the Arab immigration. It was very difficult to control, but uh, they were more interested in restricting the Jewish immigration when they were getting so many complaints from the Arab powers. And uh, this, this is something which is completely overlooked. The other area of immigration is the fact that in nearly every Arab country, except Morocco, I think, but most other Arab countries, the Jews were expelled for example, in Algeria and Tunisia and other countries, they were told to leave, forced out, and they, some went to Israel, some went to France and Britain, but they were forced out of countries where they had lived for very long periods. Uh, Morocco was an exception, but even there, because there are obviously some restrictions on the progress of life for Jewish people in Morocco, Many have gone to France and many have gone to Israel because it's no longer a, a welcoming place, although it's quite legal there. There's no, there's no, uh, no rule that they have to leave the country. And the, these things are, are not taken into account. Israel's absorbed all of, the, all of the Jews thrown out of the Arab states. The Arab, the Arab states have these vast populations. None of them have attempted to take in those who left, they left their homes. These were Palestinians who, on the instructions of the Arab powers, left their homes in 1948, and uh, they became refugees, and uh, none of the Arab countries have taken them in as real citizens of their countries. It's, it's wonderful to talk to somebody who knows a bit about the background and history, David. And, and you're right, the, the, there was a lot of... Uh, transfer of Jewish people from the surrounding Arab countries uh, into Israel, on the one hand because uh, some good things were happening in the land of Israel, but also because they were pushed out. Um, and particularly from 1947-48, uh, uh, there was a period of time when perhaps 850,000 
Jewish people were pushed out. Uh, so most of the initial population growth after um, Israel's war of independence uh, actually came from surrounding Arab countries. And this is an interesting contrast. There is not one Jewish refugee uh, in the Middle East as a result of those conflicts because Israel did the humanitarian thing and said, we are going to establish ourselves as a homeland for the Jewish people and those that are that have difficulty, that are being persecuted, that are being pushed out of, of other lands can come and settle here. It was a difficult thing to achieve, but it was achieved. Contrast now. And are not Arabs in Israel given the same rights as Jews? And are there not. The Arab Arab, citizens are. Yes, Arab members of the Knesset, the parliament. I I think there's at least one Arab judge on the Supreme Court, is there not? Correct. Uh, Absolutely. You'll find that Arab citizens, those that choose to take citizenship, uh, have exactly the same civil rights as any other citizen, as do the Christians, as do the Druze, as do um, other minorities as well. And there are uh, Arab political parties um, and there are 11 or 12 uh, members of the Knesset that are Arab and you'll find them in all walks of life. Uh, You mentioned a Supreme Court judge, correct, in the media, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, business owners, um, you know, the, the whole the whole spectrum of, of life. But the reverse doesn't occur. Um, the, the Arab Palestinians who are, some of whom are refugees, some of whom are descendants of refugees, most of them are descendants of refugees, have been held aside uh, as political tools, even if they are located in other Arab countries like Lebanon and Syria and Jordan, they're not given equal rights. There are certain uh, professions they're excluded from. There are certain property ownership that they're excluded from. Uh, And the reason for that is that um, it's political strategy. They, They want to be able to claim that there is a cohort, a significant cohort of refugees and and blame it on Israel. The truth is that there is enough space, there are enough resources that the so-called Arab-Palestinian refugee problem could be solved, if not tomorrow, then certainly within a year by absorption into the um, surrounding Arab Muslim countries, but they, they choose not to do so. So why are there so many young Australians who are not of, uh, not of Arab descent, not of Muslim descent, why are there so many of them coming out and demonstrating about Palestine when they're so ill-informed? I, I think your, your last phrase hits the nail on the head. Um, it is a blight on our education system that they are so ill-informed. Um, you rattled off uh, a range of important historical bases and I would suggest that if you went to one of those demonstrations and asked the question of some of the school children there, uh, they would be unable to uh, relate those those facts. Just on, just um, on that, is... if I could interrupt you, I gather that mm. if you ask them when they say from the river to the sea, you ask them which river and which see, they have difficulty answering these elementary geographical questions. I'm sure you're right. And there is the the Goebbels-type propaganda that if you say a lie and say it often enough, uh, it becomes believed. So prior to 1964, uh, the people who inhabited the area were largely Jews and Arabs. If you called an Arab a Palestinian, it would be regarded as an insult because prior to 1964, by and large, it was the Jewish people who were regarded as Palestinian. The whole concept of a distinct Palestinian people was something created under Yasser Arafat 
on the advice of the KGB uh, that if you want to uh, win this strategically, you have to say that you are a distinct people and you are Indigenous to the land. And it is so easily disproved. Um, as we all know, the Middle East has been involved in numerous conflicts going back uh, many years. So I ask this question. Can you name a single conflict, Palestinians versus anyone? And, and nobody can, because it, it, it never happened. Can you name a leader, a, a significant leader, prior to Yasser Arafat? Uh, nobody can, because there was no significant political leader. And you can go through and through and through the criteria for uh, nationhood, for peoplehood. Uh, the archaeology, which has been uncovered, uh, and there's hundreds of thousands of items of Jewish heritage uncovered, zero ancient uh, Palestinian items because it doesn't exist. Um, this is a modern structure. Uh, it's a modern invention for political purposes. Arabs, on the other hand, have a, have a long culture uh, in the area and you can find uh, Arab heritage uh, through the Middle East, but nothing specific Palestinian, and as I said, the, the the question I like to ask, number one, is please name a battle that was Palestinians versus anyone. Uh, one of Doesn't the, happen. Yes, one of the issues, uh, the indoctrination of Australian children, which causes them to join up in some of these demonstrations, is a reflection, is it not, of the takeover of the education departments by the far left in Australia and the introduction of ideas, the pushing of ideas which are essentially anti-Western, particularly ideas which are based on the Marxist concept of the oppressors, the breakup of people into oppressors mm -hmm. and oppressed. And it fits into the critical race theory, does it not, to try and say, well, we have here the people of uh, Palestine, the Arabs, uh, who are the oppressed, and we have the Jews who are the oppressors, and that's very, uh, very. Uh, it's completely untrue because, as we know, those who are Arab citizens of Israel have exactly the same rights as uh, Jewish people do. Uh, but w I'm wondering, uh, what what then is a solution? Is there a solution to this situation? The two-state so-called solution. I agree with you, it's not a solution, it's not a feasible solution, it just would not work and, and it's not wanted by the other side. The other side seems to just want to dissolve Israel as a state and remove all of the people from Israel. Is there a solution, do you think? In fact, that obviously has been the subject of a lot of thought and a lot of discussion by uh, eminent people uh, and I've, I've read a series of models which um, are suggestions. The simplest one uh, is the Jordan is Palestine model, that uh, Jordan actually has a majority of people who do identify as Arab Palestinians. Uh, there was a time... Uh, between 1948 and 1967, that Jordan occupied uh, Judea, Samaria, or, or the West Bank, including uh, East Jerusalem. The Arab people in that area had Jordanian citizenship. The Jordanian citizenship was only removed arbitrarily in uh, the early 1980s. And there's records of some of people having said, oh, I, I went to bed as a citizen of Jordan and I woke up stateless because their citizenship was just, was just cancelled. So uh, one possibility is to incentivise uh, Jordan to actually become, uh, take on the responsibility of the state of Palestine, that those who want uh, citizen 
ship in Jordan uh, would be uh, reallocated the citizenship and those that wanted to integrate with Israel um, could be residents with a view to citizenship. So that's one model. Another model which uh, a good friend of mine called Mordechai Kadar, who's an expert on Islamic studies, advocates, is a sort of an Emirates uh, type model. He, he says, uh, you've got to understand that Arab culture is very tribal, that, you know, this group wants to look after its interests, this group wants to look after its interests, and uh, they tend to congregate in various geographical areas. Uh, and if Israel has uh, security and overall uh, responsibility, then you can have uh, these sort of emirate structures that can self-govern uh, to an extent. Um, that's that's just too, uh, David, it's probably above my pay grade to uh, advocate a particular solution. I think that's uh, in, entirely up to the uh, Israeli government with its partners. But the optimistic aspect which we've seen emerge in the last few years uh, is the Abraham Accords. And uh, uh, four new countries um, led by the UAE um, with Bahrain and uh, Morocco and uh, Sudan have uh, signed on to uh, normalisation agreements, peace agreements, if you like, uh, with Israel. And until the 7th of October, um, there was a lot of talk that the Saudis were very close to doing so as well, which would be uh, another breakthrough. I think we're seeing a division in the Arab world between those that are more moderate, uh, like the Abraham Accord countries, and those that are radical, uh, led by Iran and perhaps uh, Syria and, uh, and that split. So Israel's just got to try to build and build and build with the Abraham Accord type countries and uh, hopefully more and more of them will uh, come on board and, and then the people will see a choice that there's, you know, a, a choice for uh, coexistence and a productive life. Um, the other choice is the extremism and the, the, the jihad and uh, um, if they're given the choice and proper education, hopefully more and more will lead to the former rather than the latter. I, I think I, I agree with you about uh, about the Jordanian solution. I, in fact, I, I mentioned this. I, I thought it was a good idea because Jordan is the greater part of the mandate. It inherited the, most of the territory of the British mandate in which the Jewish homeland under the Balfour Declaration was to be located. And it seems to be the ideal area uh, there's one one final question, and I'd like to ask you about. And do you think do you think that the Israeli government, the government of uh, Mr. Netanyahu, was distracted by too many internal matters, including judicial reform? Uh, I, I I think he was right about judicial reform, but uh, was was this too much of a an, an, an internal dissension within? Uh, within Israel and which only encouraged then organisations like Hamas to take advantage of the distraction that uh, Israel was going through? I, I'm sure that was a factor. Um, there was a bit of a perfect storm uh, and a lot of distractions internally. Um, there's all, also the lawfare against uh, Bibi Netanyahu, a bit like the lawfare oh, yeah. against... Trump at the moment, where a number of uh, legal actions have been uh, filed against him. So he's had to deal with that uh, personally. Uh, the, there was enormous division uh, in the Israeli society uh, as a result of the campaigns associated with the judicial reforms. Like, like you, I think uh, many of them uh, were reasonable and, and necessary. It was basically bringing Israel... Uh, Israel's judiciary more in line, if you like, with, with Australia's judiciary. 
um, some of the judges there had become uh, really very activist. Uh, and in the Middle East, um, what is really a driver, what is really respected is strength. Uh, division is seen as weakness. Uh, and that's a difference in the culture. So um, Iran and uh, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, if they see uh, division on the streets of Israel, and there was plenty of that, uh, they would have seen that as a sign that Israeli society is weak, that Israel is showing weakness, and very likely, as you're suggesting, that was a, a factor in the thinking about the timing for the attack. I think another factor was uh, that Saudi was getting close to joining the Abraham Accords, and the last thing Iran would want is an influence as powerful as Saudi to be joining hands with Israel. Um, it's been fascinating that Saudi has not said anything bad about Israel uh, as a result of the 7th of October. They've sort of kept fairly quiet um, and seeing how Israel handles the conflict with Hamas. So I think those two factors sort of lined up the internal division plus uh, Saudi getting close and uh, uh, that probably uh, led to the timing. And I think what another factor was the the absence of strong leadership from the United States. The West has to have a strong, ah. has to demonstrate strong leadership, which they did very much under the Trump administration. I think the Trump administration in foreign affairs seemed to perform superbly when you consider how the powers hostile to the United States uh, were obviously in awe of President Trump and knew that there was a line that they must not cross because they didn't know what his reaction would be. And I think you really need that. And with the potential of a return of a Trump administration, there may be perhaps, uh, there may be certainly what we do need, I think what the Middle East needs is strong international leadership and uh, the Americans may well be able to return to that if, uh, if there were a president in office in the United States who could follow that position. Uh, you've been uh, very generous with your time, David, uh, and we've learned a lot from what you have to say. I think that uh, once people, once Australians understand the truth, which is so important, the truth and the historical truth about the situation in the Middle East and what happened on the 7th of October, I think more Australians will be sympathetic to the case of Israel, which is undeniably the victim in what has happened in recent times. Thank you very much, David. Thank you so much for uh, helping uh, fight on this issue and uh, uh, all the best, and let's let's hope it's resolved very quickly. Thank you. And I hope you can return uh, soon and uh, talk to us again. This is ADH TV. The program is Save the Nation. I'm David Flint, and until next time, thank you. <laughs>